Hey, it's the FinTech Newscast. My name is John, and with me is Sam Bankman-Fried's biggest fan. Steve, how are you doing? Biggest fan? Hopefully not his uh, bunkmate, I assume. Yeah, that's right. He's going to jail. Is it uh, so- crazy or... Was it crazy that he wasn't in jail already? It was crazy that, that, that he was on, on, on home arrest. Um, I also I understand that they're actually going to nail him, not just for the stuff that he did with um, with his, with his, the crypto, but also for witness intimidation. Is that what it is? That's what's letting him in, in jail now. Yeah, yeah, yeah. This guy cannot stop. He reminds me of somebody else who doesn't take the advice of his lawyers. But unlike that guy, there's consequences for almost everybody else in the world. Even Sam Bankman-Fried. How, how long is, is he going to jail for? I, I think he's there until the, the trial now. Oh. Uh, so wh- whenever that is. Uh, so he was kind of out at his parents' house or whatever. And, and now he's going to have to wait in jail. So I just see that his lawyer's demanding that he... And this this makes a lot of sense, actually, that, that he get his Adderall for ADHD while he's in jail. I mean, I, I do believe in providing healthcare while you're in there, and that's part of healthcare, sure. so yeah, why not? But the ADHD is what I'm thinking. <laughs> yeah. Yes, maybe he should have been taking that when he was out of jail as well. <laughs> and, you know, it's kind of hard to um, uh, intimidate your team, or uh, he might he might pose it as uh, collaborating with his former team. But uh, that, that's not the case. Well, I don't know about Sam Bankman-Fried, but we have an actual expert on collaboration with us this week. Ivan Matviak, Executive Vice President at Clearwater Analytics and co-author of Smarter Collaboration. Welcome to the podcast. Thank you very much. Great to be here. I, I'm sure you've had a lot of things to look at lately uh, having to, to do with collaboration. Uh, I was just talking to Steve before that Zoom how they changed the world during lockdowns, but they're now requiring everybody to go back into the office. It seems like things are, are changing a lot. What, what do you think of that? You know, we're really curious about the, the Zoomification of the, the workplace uh, and work from home. But uh, what do you think of uh, this bastion of work from home uh, asking their people to come back? Thank goodness we had Zoom. Right. I mean, during uh, when, when, well, COVID hit, uh, well, when COVID hit, you know, everybody <laughs> all of a sudden had to work from home. It was uh, it was uh, you know, extremely useful. I, uh, you know, I certainly uh, spent more than a year working, uh, working remotely, and uh, and it was enormously helpful for our teams. But you know, from a collaboration point of view, you're absolutely right that uh, collaboration is much more challenging remotely, right? Whether that's you know, how do you uh, drive engagement with people? Um, how do you develop trust amongst colleagues? You know, when you're onboarding new people, how do you develop those relationships and find mentoring opportunities if you're all working remotely. So, you know, I I think today remote work clearly has an important place in giving people flexibility uh, to, 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 you know, live their lives and and engage in work the way they want. But uh, yeah, we're clearly seeing a move back to the office for, and I think for a lot of good reasons um, in terms of driving culture and engagement within a, within a, within an organization. Do you see the the move back to the office as as being basically um, uh, as a way for us to go back to being in the office full time, or do you see sort of a future that's um, newer in that it'll be more hybrid collaboration? In my case, for example, for my day job, I find that going to the office a few times a week is a lot more. Um, I feel like I'm a lot more productive than going to the office um, full time because I'm 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 you know I'm avoiding the commute. I can 
I can sort of work more asynchronously as, as well when I'm home. I can I find myself actually more willing to work late evenings and early mornings if, if I'm here. And I feel like if I were going to back to the office full time, I'd be a bit grumpier about that as well. So um, is, is the future sort of, sort of going back full time or more hybrid, would you say? I think it'll vary. I think it'll vary. I, mean, I think there are certain roles that will be fully remote. Um, you know, my role at Clearwater is actually remote. I'm based in Boston. The company's headquartered in Boise. We have offices in New York. So I'm fully remote mm -hmm. and traveling to our offices and to clients all the time. But, you know, we as an organization are going back four days a week. Uh, and I think that'll be pretty common. I think you'll have some people, either because of the nature of their jobs or their, uh, you know, their personal situations will be remote. But most I suspect most companies will encourage people back to the office for some period of time, probably not five days a week in most cases, but two, three, four days a week for sure. As we talked about, it's, it's, you can be very productive at home. There's no doubt about that. But the interactions with your colleagues, the opportunity for those you know, casual conversations in the hallway or drink after work or whatever you might want to do, is fundamentally different when you're back uh, when you're back in the office and and directly engaging with people. So, you know, I, my my personal view is there's certainly an important role for physical presence in the office. I I, I think it also it may have to do with the industry, right? Because I understand that um in uh, for example um uh, Goldman Sachs got a bunch of flack when they wanted everyone to be back in the office full time, but they also there's a study I think correlating being back in the office, people making fewer mistakes. So I think that maybe there's um, uh, there's this idea that um, you, you know, the how willing your employer may be to let you to go go to to a, on to a, on a hybrid schedule may actually be a function of the industry where where, where you work. Um, but given your connections to both um, BFSI and fintech, do you think those are industries that are more say suited better suited than others to go back to the office you know hybrid or, or full-time or where do this sort of fall on the spectrum of of how easy it would be to go back to the office i i think i think in fintech and financial services uh in general um as i said we'll see people going back to the office for you know a, a meaningful proportion of their time it'll, it'll vary by company but I do expect people to be back in the office. One, one simple reason, right? All of, you know, if you're in a growth company like Clearwater, like my, my current company, we're bringing new people in all the time, right? We're growing at like 26% a year. So we constantly have new people, both, you know, young people straight out of college and also experienced industry hires. It's very difficult to integrate people, uh, both from a culture point of view, uh, right to understand to get a feel for what the what the culture and the norms of the organization are, but also to make those interpersonal connections, to develop trust with people, um, to to you know find new opportunities, find mentors, develop you know an engaging relationship with your with your manager, for example. All that's very hard if you're fully remote. It's not impossible, but it's certainly harder. Yeah, sure. I, I know when I was uh, much earlier in my career that uh, I learned so much from people I would pass by their office or I would chat about different things, uh, sometimes not even directly work-related, but uh, uh, things that you would catch on um, and, and maybe even use later. Uh, do you think there would be like some permanent damage for people getting into the workplace in the past few years? I, I actually, I think there's a risk of that. I do, um, particularly for um, younger folks who are maybe straight out of school 
since COVID who, for whom the remote work has been the norm. In some ways, I think people don't know what they're missing in terms of you know, developing their networks uh, and engaging in, you know, with their peers in the company. Um, you know, they certainly are enjoying the benefits of remote work. And there are benefits, as you talked about, in terms of, you know, personal flexibility and being able to flex the hours that you're working. Uh, some people are, do feel more productive when they're, kind of, you know, in their own office, just quiet and working and don't have some of the distractions of the, of, of the you know, the company office. But, um, the downside is that, you know, that challenge of networking and relationship development and trust building, which is so important, uh, particularly early on in one's career. Yeah, I, I think I, yeah, I was just going to say just along, along those lines, you know, some of the research we did around collaboration showed that if your people aren't deeply collaborating with their colleagues and peers within six months of starting with a company, doesn't matter whether you're a new hire out of college or an experienced hire at an industry hire, you're vastly more likely to leave within two years than someone who is deeply engaged and collaborating effectively. And so, you know, it, that it is just, it's just harder to develop those relationships and those collaborative interactions if you're fully remote. Yeah, now that you say that, that makes a lot of sense. I worked at a, a lot of startups and you wanted to, to succeed because it was not just you, but people that you hung out with, that you went to lunch with, that you, uh, you know, you talked to uh, uh, for solving work problems, and you really wanted it that to mean something uh, uh, for for the whole team, for people that you were you know, friends with. Um, whereas if you're working remote, yeah, I, I guess you wouldn't uh, be as invested in the company. Uh, so that that makes a lot of sense certainly a risk yeah 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 so so in in this um example here what is the difference between being in a collaborative environment or uh, an environment conducive to that and 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 sort of being more engaged because i sort of see this as two sides of a similar coin so how, how are they different in in the research that that, that that you have done collaboration we view as a tool and one of the benefits of collaboration is increased engagement, right? Collaboration, one of the things that we talk about in the book, Smarter Collaboration, is um, being very intentional about when and why you're collaborating and with whom, right? Because collaboration isn't always better, so, as, as we talked about earlier. Sometimes, you know, it might be better just to close the door and lock yourself in a room and, and think deeply on your own for a period of time. That, that's, that can be effective. Uh, but there are other situations in which uh, identifying the right people with the right expertise and bringing them together in the right context uh, is enormously powerful. And that process of collaboration, of connecting with your colleagues, solving problems together, benefiting from each other's expertise and, and, and diverse perspectives, that goes a long way toward developing engagement within an organization. I'm always curious about how people sort of um, how people go about their own professional journey. So, how did you become interested in this space of collaboration, and and how did you actually end up writing a book on uh, on on the topic? Well, it was interesting. Back to the remote working topic during COVID, um, my co-author, by the way, uh, is my wife Heidi Gardner, <laughs> and uh, she's a, a professor at Harvard. That's and, easy. Yeah, exactly. So during COVID, um, we were thinking a lot about this subject. Um, and we actually wrote an article for Harvard Business Review 
which talked about um, seven things to think about if we have to start working remotely. And the day the article came out, Facebook, Microsoft, Apple, and Google all sent their employees home <laughs> to start to start this wave of remote working. So the timing of the article was great. Uh, got a lot of readership, and um, you know, a, a lot of a lot of press uh, uh, and readership within HBR. And uh, that kind of started us thinking about this process. We wrote a couple of more articles uh, thinking about collaboration, and then uh, we were asked if we would obviously do a longer form uh, book on that. And my my uh, co-author, Heidi Gardner, has done a lot of research on organizational behavior in the past, and I've obviously been a practitioner of it in the organizations that I've led. So this book is kind of an interesting combination of the uh, academic research around the factors driving collaboration and influencing collaboration, but also how to do it well. There's a lot of organizations will say, yeah, I, I get that collaboration is important, but I don't necessarily know where we're doing it well and where we're not doing it well. And, you know, for areas where we have opportunity for improvement, what, what should we do differently? So as Steve mentioned, you've talked to a lot of uh, executives uh, and, and done a lot of research. What, what do you wish that uh, more executives were aware of as far as uh, collaboration in person and, and versus remote work? Well, maybe two angles on that. You know, one is the the basic um, thesis behind the book is that there are two macro trends that we're facing that are conflicting in a way. One is that people and organizations are becoming increasingly specialized. Right? You think about doctors, uh, researchers software engineers, whatever that is, in order to become expert in their field, they need to go increasingly deep and narrow, right? To really become specialized in their field, right? The problem is that the, a lot of the challenges that we face, think of cybersecurity or climate risk, or even something like Gen AI, um, are increasingly complex and ambiguous and the, the issues and the solutions are very uncertain. So to tackle those big problems, you need to bring together people with different expertise, different points of view, even different life experiences and, and create an environment where they can collaborate effectively together because you know, you're not gonna solve, you're not gonna even start to solve something like climate risk um, with, narrow sets of expertise, right? You need the people who understand the science, people who understand the policy, the human impact, right? You need a range of, of skills. And, and that's, when we say smarter collaboration, that's what we're talking about. We're talking about a very intentional way of analyzing problems and, and bringing the expertise that's needed to, to kind of crack those problems and creating an environment where they can do it well. So, so to, to your question, what do I wish people realized, leaders realized? Um, I think they need to, first of all, get comfortable with that ambiguity, right? Because the, the in some ways, the highest value problems that we can solve, right? And the ways that companies can really differentiate themselves in the market is solving those big, complex problems. But to do that, they need to be very intentional and thoughtful about how they're bringing together different types of expertise throughout the life of a, of a, a project 
uh, to crack that problem. So is, is the book aimed at essentially, um, uh, say, managers who want to make sure that, that their teams collaborate in, in a way that's productive and efficient? Or is it aimed at, say, the HR professional who's devising a whole collaboration strategy for a whole uh, company or something? So what's sort of the, the target audience for, for the book? It's both. The first, the first couple of chapters talk about the, the business case and the talent case. So what, what's, you know, we, what we demonstrate empirically is that organizations that collaborate more effectively have higher revenues, uh, greater profits, um, higher employee engagement, greater talent retention. Right? So that's kind of the real tangible business case. A lot of people think, oh, collaboration, it's kind of soft subject. It's not, you know, no, it, it, it really drives tangible commercial outcomes for businesses. And then we talk about the talent case for it, right? Well, how does it help on things like retention, um, engagement, um, and employee development and career development. And so the rest of the book, so that's kind of the, like the business and the talent case at the beginning. And then the rest of it talks about how do you execute on it? So how, how as a leader, do you communicate the ideas um, and different strategies for kind of macro and micro level engagement on communicating the ideas? We talk about executing on the ideas. And, um, you know, how do you analyze where your organization is today? How do you find where it's working well and where maybe some of the, um, uh, some of the challenges or issues are, and then how do you um, kind of execute it on it at the individual and organizational level? And that's sort of where the um, maybe the HR professionals or the learning and development functions come in, right? Is helping think about how do you train organizations on the idea on these ideas? How do you use some of the tools that we talk about? Like we developed a behavioral assessment tool so people can understand their collaborative tendencies. So how, you know, how would you use that with individuals and teams? To think about their collaborative dynamics. So it's really it's it's all of the above. It's at the executive level. It's at the team leadership level, right? People who are managing either organizations or or teams, and then also at the individual level and at the at the functional level for people who want you know learning and development or HR professionals who want to think about how to bring these ideas out into the organization and train people on them. So I guess a more foundational question is, you know, since you say that there's tremendous quantifiable benefits to being a more collaborative org, right? Um, what, how, how do you actually measure whether an org is collaborative or not? And sort of what, what's the, the range? And also, can you maybe provide some examples of how um, uh, engaging in more collaborative processes have, have actually affected a, a company that maybe you, you, you've worked with? Sure. Yeah, there's a, there's a number of ways that you can measure collaboration. Um, and we come at, we tend to come at it from a couple of angles. One is what we call uh, an organizational diagnostic. So we'll do uh, interviews and surveys uh, within the, the leadership of the organization, within kind of the broader kind of middle management of the organization to get an understanding of how people feel about the culture and the collaborative activities. We'll often talk with clients to see how well the organization is collaborating with their clients or third parties. Uh, you can also then collect a lot of data. Uh, organizations often have uh, data that they're not using uh, to look at where you have bright spots or barriers to collaboration within the organization. So you can look at, for example, Teams, right? Microsoft Teams. Who's, who's collaborating? Who's chatting with who uh, on Teams? Which organizations are communicating with each other? Um, you can look at project and timesheet records. Um, you can look at, you know, who's 
engaged on projects, how many functions are involved, how many different levels of the organization are involved, if you're a multinational, you know, how many geographies are involved in these projects. So organizations often have a lot of data that, uh, that they have access to uh, and, and can start to analyze to try to understand where collaboration is happening within the organization and, and, and where it's not happening. Um, I'll give you two examples of the benefits um, I'll talk at the individual level, and then I'll talk at the organizational level. So we, we did some really interesting analysis looking at uh, two people within the same organization, and we called them twins because they graduated uh, from graduate school at the same time. They entered the company at the same time. They were in a very similar function. Um, they had similar performance reviews. They had similar educational backgrounds. They were on all, on most metrics, very similar. Um, and then we did some network mapping analysis to understand who these two individuals were working with in the organization. One of them, uh, Twin One, had a fairly small network. They were collaborating deeply with half a dozen or so people within the organization and only within two or three other functions within the organization. The second twin, uh, was collaborating very extensively. They had a network where they were regularly engaging with dozens and dozens of people. It was about 40 or 45 people. Um, they were working across the silos of the organization. And not only were they collaborating uh, with all of these people, Twin Two, but the people they were collaborating with were collaborating with each other. So it wasn't a hub and spoke you know, with Twin Two at the middle. You had all of these people working together. And when you looked at the business outcomes of these two individuals, the outcomes for twin two, the more collaborative one, were four times higher than the outcomes for twin one. Same background, same education, same start date, you know, through the same, four times higher. That's a professional services firm where you can easily measure their, right, their, their outcomes, uh, their, their personal outcomes. Um, so that was pretty dramatic. Um, the second example I'll give is, is that at the organizational level, we worked with a, uh, a biotech company who uh, you know, had a very uh, compelling mission of bringing uh, cancer uh, medicines to market, right? And so there's a real urgency there to get these medicines through the R&D and approval pipeline quickly because you're literally saving lives, right? Um, but they were having a real trouble. They were a very siloed organization. They and their their drug development process was very linear. It was, you know, pure research and then um, product development and then um, all of the uh, you know regulatory approval processes and then marketing and then sales, et cetera, all the way down. And it was taking them like four years to get a prop to get uh, ideas through that pipeline and get products out into market. We worked with them to operate in a much more agile environment, bringing all of those functions together on a project from day one, right? And thinking more horizontally about how they were going to address all of those needs, um, getting the, the functions to talk to each other, getting the creating, restructuring their incentives. So they were motivated around both the quality and the speed of getting these products to market. And they were literally able to have their time to market in two years just by getting the right expertise together at the right times, right? Rather than this more chain process of I work on my thing and then I hand it over to you and they work on theirs and then they hand it over to the next person. 
I didn't think that was even possible with uh, that industry. <laughs> it's it was I was a little surprised myself, but no, it's uh, it's not it's not uncommon actually. And, and you know, one of the other challenges, or I think interesting elements of that industry, where I actually think. Uh, my world of, of of fintech and software could learn a lot more is on partnerships. Um, the uh, biotech and pharma industry have very strong industry collaborations and partnerships with, and they've developed some pretty some pretty mature processes for managing those partnerships, um, whether those are distribution partnerships or research and development partnerships. Um, not easy to do, right? It's if it's hard to uh, collaborate internally, it's very hard to collaborate with third parties. If you've ever been involved in a joint venture or any kind of uh, partnership, it can be really challenging, but they've developed some, some really uh, outstanding processes at managing those uh, relationships. And, uh, you know, my, my view, our view is that's a model that uh, others should adopt rather than continually trying to, you know, invent within the house and, uh, you know, do all that sort of development on one's own. What is the role of different Technologies and in, in terms of shaping how uh, how a, how a company collaborates. I'm thinking, for example, that I'm in a few teams now that use Slack, and I find it to be quite dis- distracting. Versus other teams, it tends to be mostly um, Outlook or email based, or you know, say like things like uh, uh, SharePoint or Google Drive based. So, how how do you think the role of tech affects whether a team, uh, an organization, or even an individual can behave in a more collaborative manner or, or what tools say would we, we say are better than, than, than others within the space? I don't think it's really a question of which tools are better. They all have a role, right? Email can be valuable. So things like SharePoint uh, or even just the collaborative capabilities with embedded within Microsoft Office now where you can you know, simultaneously work on a PowerPoint or Word document together uh, can be powerful. Teams and Slack um, are extremely useful. I, I think I think they're all useful tools. The question is, what's the organization's strategy on how to use those tools and what are kind of the norms and expectations on their use? Um, You know, something like Slack or Teams is fundamentally different than uh, email, right? It has a a different purpose, a different cadence. If it's used wrong, as you said, it can be very distracting, right? So is it okay within the organization to turn off Teams for a period of time if I'm trying to concentrate? Or even to put a almost an out of office uh, on my email to say, "Hey, I'm concentrating for an hour, right? Mm. I'm focus, and I'm going to come back to you, right? Or what are the norms and expectations of response times around things? Right? It's, it's not. I talk to friends, and it's not uncommon that there's an expectation that just because someone sends me a team message that uh, you know they have to respond, you know, within within minutes, any time of day or night, right? And so. Um, which can be very dysfunctional for an organization. So I think it's more about the organization having a very deliberate um, set of decisions around how it wants to use the technology, where they're going to use it, uh, and using it intelligently. You will want, to, want maybe just one other um, aside on that. You know, something like Teams, which is what we happen to use, Microsoft Teams. Um, you know, the communities that you can create there can be incredibly powerful. Right, you can create opt-in communities where people who have uh, similar interests or affiliations can join. You can obviously create, you know, project-oriented uh, you know, rooms, as it were, where people can engage. So, you know, I think particularly in a remote work environment where uh, it is harder just to bump into somebody in the hallway, these technologies are very powerful when used 
again, in that smarter collaboration way, in a very deliberate way where the teams have norms and, and openly discuss the norms around how they're going to use the technologies. I actually find it um, useful um, uh, in terms of, of both um, teams and Outlook and just being, I guess, on in, in the MS suite of, of, of products that I create an automatic focus time, I think maybe twice a day or so, where I get an hour and a half or an hour to basically just do either the, the the work that I need to do or just deep deep thinking because I find that um, it's difficult for me to just be in meetings all day. I, f- I find like I just don't do anything at all. Like I'm I'm not very productive if, if I'm just in meetings all day long. So having that be an automated thing is actually quite useful. So I'm, I'm curious whether because I think you you touched touched upon this as well. Um, the role of creating focus time or sort of solo work time when you work in a highly network um, and in my case very decentralized, very geographically dispersed team as well. Is that something that, that, that you see will lead to success or am I going about this the the, the wrong way? No, I love it. I, I, I use that focus time as well. Although sometimes I forget that it's on and then when I'm expecting a call on teams, it doesn't ring. <laughs> it's, just, <laughs> it's just frustrating. But uh, no, I use it as well. I think it's incredibly powerful. I, you know, I think, again, collaboration, effective collaboration, smarter collaboration is about being hyper-intentional about when and where you're collaborating and with whom. Right. And there are just, you know, I, it, it also goes back to people's personal styles, right? Some people are more introvert. Some people are more extrovert. Some people are, um, you know, more, uh, more comfortable thinking through problems on their own, right? Maybe forming a point of view and then going and engaging with uh, peers once they have thought through it themselves. Others would rather just get in the room, throw it up on the whiteboard bat around the ideas, right? So again, you know, you need to understand both what are the uh, comfortable behaviors of the individuals within the team, right? How do, how do people like to work? Um, and then how do you create an environment that works for them? So if someone like me, or like you maybe described, likes to have a little of that focus time before they go into a meeting, you allow for that and create, you know, use the technology to create those opportunities. Um but then also, you know, create an environment where they can come together with the other people who maybe like to do more real-time brainstorming um, and make that an effective environment for people. Yeah, that reminds me of a, a study from uh, Google. They were trying to see which groups were were more effective or, or why certain teams uh, were more effective than others. And they tried all kinds of measurements, people's experience uh, on the team, uh, how much uh, they participated. Uh, what they were working on, and they they couldn't crack it. Why this team kind of jailed and really was productive, uh, and why some didn't work very well, even if they had someone very experienced at the uh, leading the team. Uh, you know, maybe sometimes it, it didn't work out or it wasn't very effective. And it turns out they found out that, uh, and I don't know, maybe you've read this, uh, that uh, the teams that had the most um, uh, participation across the group. Uh, so if everybody, uh, if the uh, if the comments communication was more balanced across the team members, those teams were more effective. I, I guess that, that was some indication that people, every more people on the team were engaged and and communicating and and participating uh, in the group. Uh, is that something you've noticed, or have you seen this as well? I, I've, uh, I've actually seen that research and uh, we, you know, we haven't tried to replicate the research, but it, it absolutely resonates, right? Part, if you're going to bring groups of experts together um, to work on a problem, logically, you want to hear from those people, right? And you want to give them sufficient airtime, both because 
obviously that can help influence and, and make the decision making of the group better. But it also, to your point, drives engagement. There's nothing worse than being asked to participate in a meeting or a project. And then one person dominates the conversation, right? That's very, um, uh, you know, disengaging and, um, uh, you know, and can be very off-putting, I think, for a lot of people to feel like, you know, they were asked to come in and participate and then, um, you know, their points of view aren't really valued. So absolutely. Um, you know, it's also important, you know, again, sometimes people feel like, uh, you know, if they're going to create a project, right, they want to be very open about bringing lots of people into the conversation. Well, that can be a real waste of time for people right? If they don't have an explicit reason to be in the room for the conversation or to be involved in the project at that stage of the project, right? Um, that can be a real waste of time for people, which can cause then, you know, frustration um, and, 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 and reduced engagement. So, uh, you know, having, being very thoughtful about ensuring that you're getting uh, the voices, giving, giving airtime to the people who you're asking to participate and ensuring that you're asking only those who really need to be there to be in the room is incredibly powerful. I, I, I know that uh, you also work with uh, AI a bit. Uh, what do you think of the, the impact of a generative AI and AI uh, overall, uh, the impact it will have on the workplace uh, down a few years? That's a, uh, that's a big question, isn't it? Um, 30 seconds. That's what you're yeah, no, exactly. 30 seconds or less. I, I, I'm incredibly excited about uh, Gen AI and what it can do. I, and I think it's going to have, um, has the potential to have a big impact uh, on, on our business. And we're already within Clearwater, we're, we're very actively exploring it. We've set up a, a dedicated team of folks to um, really dedicate some time thinking about how we apply it effectively you know, where can we pilot it? How do we measure the impact of it? And how do we do that in a thoughtful way that also manages some of the risks that are uh, involved with genetics? Plenty of risks, yeah. Plenty of risks, right? We've heard about um, some of the hallucinations that uh, the technology can generate and other things. So we're being very, very we're being, at Clearwater, we're being very thoughtful about where we roll it out. But I, I, I think it's, um, I think it has the potential to unleash uh, enormous productivity uh, in particular functions, whether that's code development or content development, uh, you know, marketing type activities. Um, but we're going to have to be thoughtful um, about its use. We're going to have to train people on the appropriate use of the tools and technology. Um, we'll have to have the right kind of risk management and risk mitigation in place to ensure that it's being used uh, in inappropriate and effective ways. But I think it's incredibly exciting. I, I've heard of people talking about it as the kind of the next point of evolution in human in human history. I'm not quite sure I'd go that far yet, but 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 I think it's really it's exciting. getting there. Yeah, yeah, yeah. building up. Uh, actually, Steve doesn't exist. He's just a an AI that I used to help me out. With I'm this. just an AI. <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Pretty soon, um, you know, we might be out of business here, Steve. No, automated uh, podcast hosts. That's actually, I'm sure, I'm sure that's that's a case. Yeah, I was I was at a symposium. I was at a symposium a couple of weeks back with uh, hosted by some MIT professors, and it was really interesting to hear their perspectives on. It. And a lot of these guys were AI uh, focused on AI research for the last you know 20 years, 
Um, their view was, if you want facts, use Google. If you want ideas, use Gen AI. Um, and I thought that was a really interesting bifurcation, you know, of how Gen AI can be a tool for uh, efficiency and creativity, but that it is a tool, right? That it doesn't, it it doesn't do everything, and it has its place. We need to be very thoughtful about what role it does play and what and what it doesn't play. Yeah, I, I like the idea of it as um, kind of like getting you started. Oh yeah, here's the main things, or, or making sure you didn't miss anything as well. So just uh, let me see what this would have done. Oh yeah, right. There's that one point I forgot that, or or uh, there's an interesting take. Uh, on something, right, the, the collaborative partner. Exactly right, exactly right. And that, that, that's actually something we're thinking about. We touch on it a little bit in the book, um, but you know, the book came out last November before, or just as I guess Gen AI was really hitting uh, hitting the, uh, the, the press. Um, yeah. And, but we are starting to think about what, is it, what does it look like to collaborate with technology? We talk about collaborating with technology in the sense that we touched on earlier of using, you know, uh, chat, functionality and teams and uh, th those kinds of tools. But uh, you know, now we're thinking about what does it look like? You know, how would you bring AI in as one of the partners in a team? Right. So if I have a team oh, of yeah, five people, how do I think of a how do I think of AI as my sixth partner, right? And the role that it can play in idea generation and conversations. Yeah, yeah, that's it's really interesting. Um, hopefully it doesn't get all the raises and bonuses as well. <laughs> yeah. well if we're all more efficient, maybe we'll all get more raises and bonuses. We'll see. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Right, right. Yeah, it improves your productivity uh, totally. uh, across the board. Well, we'll, we'll see what happens. Um, yeah, that, thanks for joining us uh, on the podcast. Some really interesting points. No, thank you very much. It's been uh, been great fun, and uh, I hope... Uh, I hope uh, people will uh, have a look at the book and uh, and explore some of the uh, some of the ideas around collaboration. Yeah, 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 for sure. Steve, please try to try to let's try to collaborate a bit more, will you? I I, I will do my best. No more Slack messages at, at two in the morning. I promise. Oh man, you're killing me. You're killing me. All right, that's uh, Ivan Matviak, Executive Vice President at Clearwater Analytics and co-author of Smarter Collaboration: A New Approach to Breaking Down Barriers and Transforming Work. Please hit subscribe to keep up with the latest in fintech news and thank you for listening.